Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, some believe Jagmeet Singh should pull his support for the Trudeau Liberals, but will he? Homeless crisis in Ontario is not just an unfortunate situation. It's the outcome of decades of policy decisions and poor choices made by successive Ontario governments. What are the real root causes of the problem and how can the government fix it? Well, we'll discuss that. And in the wake of the Silicon Valley bank collapse, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions is now going to start monitoring Canadian banks. Marvin Wright, a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, will talk to us about that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Lots of uh, politicking going on, of course, in Ottawa these days to do with the concern about foreign interference. Uh, There's a parliamentary committee that's looking into this right now. Well, they're supposed to be looking into it right now. Uh, But swirling around that are a number of different subplots, uh, including, well, the budget which is coming up. And, and of course, that, by definition, a a vote on the budget is going to be a a confidence motion or a non-confidence motion, I guess, in the government. Uh, But given some of the scenarios and some of the things we do know from the leaked CSIS documents, uh, do they even have to wait for that vote before Parliament acts on this? Uh, Tasha Curative writes about this uh, in the National Post. Uh, The article is called, uh, Jagmeet Singh Must Poll Support for Justin Trudeau Liberals. Uh, and she joins us. T- Tasha, of course, is a principal and navigator and author of the book, The Right Path. Uh, good to talk with you again, Tasha. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, pleasure, Bill. Thank you. It's the game of politics, I guess, that can be frustrating here. Um, you know, as, as you watched any of the hearings uh, from the, the, the parliamentary committees and the MPs that are, are supposed to be dealing with this now, uh, the Liberals are stalling, of course, at the committee, as, uh, you know, I guess everybody expected that they would, talking about vacations, et cetera, about, you know, just to kill time. Is this, is this even the right venue for this? I guess that's the first question, because I, I questioned this right from the beginning. Nobody on that but that board is, is a, a, an expert in, in national security. Uh, they're all politicians, and they're playing politics now. And, and, you know, that's pretty much what they do, and that's what we should have expected, isn't it? Well, and that's the problem. This should not be a partisan issue. It's a national security issue, and it doesn't just involve the Liberal Party. Um, it's, uh, you know, we have, provincially we saw a progressive conservative MPP resign um, because there were allegations that there was also interference uh, in his writing and that uh, interference in the provincial process. So it's it's a, an issue that touches, I think, pretty much probably every party in this country, sadly. So it's incumbent on them to get together and say, you know what, this is wrong. It's not just limited to elections. It affects the entire Chinese-Canadian community, which is being used for these purposes by a foreign government. I mean, how can we allow this to continue? There should be a public inquiry into something that's called transnational repression. It's not even just election interference, the broader term. It's about, you know, repressing people, threatening them. If they don't act a certain way, uh, their relatives will be hurt or whatever. And so it goes into business, academia. Anyway, a a full-on public inquiry. Like, we had a Gomery inquiry, remember that, in the early 2000s. Uh, which is probably what Trudeau is afraid of, by the way, <laughs> something like that. But that's the only way to really clear the air and get to the bottom of it. And I mean, there are a couple of different avenues. I mean, I th- I, the people I've talked to and, and even the callers, and we've, we've talked about this on the program over the last little while, uh, many of them are uncomfortable with the fact that uh, that this is still in the in the political realm, that that's the politicians that are doing the investigation, because they usually do that poorly. Uh, the fact that the, the Prime Minister has announced that he's going to appoint a special rapporteur, uh, should he even be able to do that? I mean, you know, is, is I'm going to appoint somebody to investigate the government? or, or what's it, What are the parameters going to be? Apparently, the Prime Minister can set those too. Uh, and I'm not suggesting the fix is in here, but the perception here is that this is not going to be independent if it's somebody who's appointed by the Prime Minister. 
No, it's, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous because it's basically just kicking the, the football down the, the field because what it means is the rapporteur can actually recommend an inquiry, right? So you're, you're doing this. The rapporteur will take the time to look into things. Uh, that delays things for the government. Very useful. Oh, we're doing something about it. Put it on the back burner. Nothing to see here. And then the rapporteur can, can come out and say, okay, well, I found this and this, and maybe that we need an inquiry. Maybe we don't. So you could end up in the same place, but you're going to spend a lot of money, waste a lot of time, and also uh, you're going to encourage continual leaking, which is what's happening, not just for our security forces, but uh, as, you know, foreign ones as well, and particularly the Americans, who are not happy at all with the way Canada has been dealing with this issue right on their doorstep. Well, they're not happy at all with how we've been dealing with China for the last few years, are they? I mean, Correct. we go right back down to it from Huawei and a number of other issues. Uh, and the fact that they've just signed a deal with Australia and the UK uh, about, you know, more military presence in the South China Sea. We weren't even invited to that uh, because yeah. we've been posturing about it, not doing much about it. And I, I, you get the sense sometimes that on the international field that, uh, that, that other governments are losing patience with us. You do, and that is dangerous for us as a country. Um, we're punching below our weight right now in terms of our military capabilities. And again, this is not just you know cur this current government that's dropped the ball on this. Previous governments as well that dithered over replacing our very aging fighter jets that uh, have not invested enough in our military. Uh, I mean, it just it goes on and on. You know, we have a shortage of personnel. We have. I mean, there's so many issues to to address there. And on the international scene, um, you know, might may not be right, but it, it carries weight. And if you don't have that to bring to the table, no one's going to take you seriously. Add to that this issue now of foreign interference that's going unaddressed by our government. And our allies look at us and say, you know, this is this is this is trouble. You're not helping the situation. So we're not going to invite you to the party. The infrastructure for, for this that we've discovered so far has been in place, Latasha, for some time. Uh, we've talked about it on the program. The, the Post has reported on this. There have been a number of different uh, stories about, about Chinese influence, for instance, at Canadian academia, uh, you know, universities, research, where they're working hand-in-hand -hand with Canadian uh, researchers, and some of them on military weaponry. Uh, you know, they're supposed to be an adversarial power. I don't know how that happened, but it was happening and, and probably still is to a certain extent. Uh, we've known about the quote-unquote police stations, or say they say are there as liaisons for Chinese Canadians. I think we know that's a, a falsehood now. So it's been there. And and I guess the question, maybe the first question that the rapporteur or somebody else is going to ask you is, if they've been laying the groundwork for this for quite some time, how much damage do they do and how deep does this go? But it, from the, the sounds of it, it goes very deep. And you're right. I mean, I just, uh, I did the check and, and to when I started writing about this. And it was, I, I think my first article was 2016. So, you know, it's not, it's not something that even journalists were not paying attention to. It kept cropping up, but it did not get taken seriously, <clears throat> excuse me, by the political class, unfortunately, because it served their purposes. And by what I mean by that is that, you know, when you go out for votes in a riding or any number of ridings, you try and mobilize communities. This is a, this is what all parties do, and par communities also want to be represented with their member of parliament. So if you find someone who says, "Hey, well, you know, I can get so many votes for you. I am a leader in the community in the local association of whatever," uh, many politicians will be, as you say, willfully blind. As Sam Cooper wrote a book, "Willful Blindness," on yeah. this, um, or just turn a, you know, just decide, okay, well, this looks great on paper. I'm not going to dig anymore. I'm I'm not going to. I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm going to take the support. The result is 
that it it just gets swept under the rug. And Chinese Canadians are speaking out, and they said that as far back as 2003, 2006, they were making deputations to parliamentary committees saying there's pressure on citizens of Chinese descent to vote a certain way or do certain things based on, you know, the foreign government, the United Front of the Communist Party of China telling them to do these things or else their relatives maybe, you know, hurt back in China or their kids won't get visas to come study or a whole bunch of various threats. It's awful. And they said no one cared in part because, well, it serves people's purposes, which is really, really sad. Yeah, it really is. And and another reason why I think, there, as we mentioned, there should be an independent inquiry. But let me circle back, if I could, to the political aspect of this, because uh, that's part of the thing that you wrote about, of course, in the piece in the Post, uh, is uh, one of the players in this, of course, is Jagmeet Singh. I mean, you know, uh, he's mentioned as soon as this story broke and, and started to become a front page story once again, uh, that, that he was shocked to use all the right words and, and that he may decide to to withdraw his support of the deal with the liberals which is something that he says almost all the time when he wants to get something out of them i'm sure he's going to use it again in the next 10 days before the budget's finally uh delivered too because they want more stuff there they want you know the dental care and all that other stuff uh but there's a lot of pressure from what i hear in ottawa right now for people to say to mr singh look at enough with the talk if you don't believe in this government pull the plug and I, I, I doubt that's going to happen. I don't think he wants to, uh, not for any philosophical reason, but I think for his own political skin. He knows that if, if this government falls and there's an election, uh, any any leverage he has over government and over policy is pretty much going to evaporate, isn't it? Well, yes. Again, this is, this is political self-interest. And that's why I said yeah. it's time to put country over party, because this is a national security interest. This isn't simply, you know, how much money are you going to get for X program? This goes to the core of confidence. What did the prime minister know? When did he know it? And why hasn't this issue been dealt with? And we do know now that the prime minister had been briefed. The prime minister has misrepresented what he knew to the Canadian public. So how can Jagmeet Singh say the House has confidence in him? It is really a no-brainer. But like you said, he is worried for his own political future and his fortunes of his party. So um, he may not do the right thing in the end, though I hope he does. And and this whole thing about if, in fact, this rapporteur is, is going to be appointed and, and the prime minister says that's going to be soon, are we going to end up, I mean, you mentioned the Gomery report, but I mean, it, one that's maybe even more recent, but it's down south of the border, was the much-anticipated Mueller report about Russian interference in the U.S. elections. And that took a long time and took a lot of heat. Uh, and basically, we kind of got a nothing burger. I mean, he, he presented the stuff, and there's a lot of, of, of information that substantiated it. Yeah, the Russians were heavily uh, active in, in trying to change that election around. But he basically threw it on the table and said, I'm not going to charge anybody. I'm not even going to recommend. Uh, you guys do what you want with it. And, of course, that's still carrying on now. Are we going to be in the same scenario if, in fact, this report comes back and simply says, well, you know, yeah, here's what we saw. It's up to you to decide whether or not it's illegal or not. Do, do they, we then go to the RCMP? Do we then take next steps? And you know, we don't even know where we're going to be politically by the time that report comes out. Right. Well, the RCMP should be investigating this at the same, at the same time, like now. They shouldn't be waiting for this. They should be investigating this. all sorts of evidence. Of, of malfeasance, um, not simply electoral. And this is this is the issue. It's not, as you pointed out, limited to that. Um, there's influence in academia, there's influence in business, there's all sorts of different things. Um, are these acts illegal? Well, it depends what you consider. Um, you know, at the highest level, the highest level is a word that we, we rarely use. I don't even know when the last time someone was charged for this is treason, right? And that is, uh, it's such a heavy word. No one's used it because it really, it goes to, you know, the, the, the core issue of sovereignty of our country. Um, but if you're a politician who is acting 
on behest of a foreign government, technically, that could be considered treason. And, you know, that it, this is where things end up. Would the rapporteur recommend that? Should the RCMP look into that at, in tandem with the evidence that's come out so far? The problem is, if you don't wrap this up in a public inquiry, stuff gets done behind the scenes and people don't know. You need to shine a lot of light on this so people understand what's at stake and the correct decisions of charging or not charging people are made. So uh, that's why I think a public inquiry would be the best route for this, not a rapporteur, um, but something that is, you know, that brings light to this and encourages also Chinese Canadians who are being oppressed by this to come forward. Many have lately, um, many more than I've ever seen in the press before. Um, but you're not going to get people to come forward unless they feel safe, and a public inquiry would do that. Well, and, um, you know, just to bring it full circle, I mean, you know, I was talking with Warren Kinsella on the program about this the other day, and, and uh, who, of course, worked extensively with Jean Chrétien in a number of his re-election campaigns, and, and it was Chrétien that actually you know, called on the on the Gomery report, you know, because of all this, the accusations that were swirling back and forth about the sponsorship and where did the money go, and where did Quebec, and who benefited, et cetera, et cetera. So he, he appointed it. Uh, Paul Martin took the heat for it, but I mean, it was Cretchen that did that. And, and Kinsella's point was, look at John Cretchen said the best disinfectant is sunshine. D- stop for doing things behind closed doors. Uh, and that's pretty much the way he acted. And Cretchen took some lumps for acting in that fashion over the years. We get that, but it's what we're expecting from politicians now, or what we should expect from them anyway, isn't it? It is. And you know, that's what is a bit in short supply right now um, because of all the politicking going around. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, Gomery was not an issue of national security. To me, a national security issue yeah. like this is, is it trumps almost every other thing um, because it, it goes, again, to the core of how we make decisions in our country. Uh, so, you know, I think really, like I said, I think it's a no-brainer that we should have this. We had it for Gomery. We should have a public inquiry for this. Um, it's about ethics. It's about, uh, you know, potential corruption. I mean, there's all, all sorts of things you can throw in the mix. But at the end of the day, it's about are we as a country deciding our own future or is it being decided by other powers? So that's what an inquiry would look at in a large sense, not just limited to politics, not just limited to those two elections, but to say, you know, how deep does this go to your point and what can we do about it? Uh, and it's not going away. I mean, I know some politicians, when they get themselves in a sticky situation, figure, okay, we'll just rag the puck here and the news cycle will change and, and something else will come up and people will forget about it. I don't think that's not going to happen this time, is it? Well, it's not because of many factors, and chiefly um, the international factor. We know that you know Joe Biden's coming on the 23rd to Canada. That is another milestone. What is Trudeau going to tell him? You know, already we've been snubbed at the AUKUS group that was created, but uh, I think Trudeau's going to have to bring something forward and say, you know, this is what we're doing to deal with this issue. And uh, I think it goes beyond simply appointing the special rapporteur. So what's going to be said to Biden? I think that's very interesting. Is he going to is he going to try and say enough to him so that Jagmeet Singh will then be able to say on the you know after the twenty eighth when the budget drops? Oh, I have confidence. This is fine. Maybe he'll try. Maybe he will. I don't know. But to me, nothing short of a public inquiry would inspire that confidence. We'll have to see what he comes out with. Exactly, Tasha Keridan. As always, Tasha, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. You too. Take care now. Uh, by the way, the book, The Right Path, is an interesting read, too, about the political path taken uh, by uh, both political parties here, actually, and uh, because they seem to be in some, a sense of disarray these days, don't they? You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
More than a thousand volunteers are looking at the number of unhoused people in the region, but Nicole Mucci with Union Gospel Mission says the count doesn't gauge the entire problem, adding that it needs to take a hard look at how women and gender diverse people experience homelessness. So if it looks like 75% of people experiencing homelessness are uh, cisgendered men, then you might see more men's shelters open up when really there is perhaps a need for additional shelter for individuals who maybe have kids. Mucci says most women are reluctant to speak out because of safety concerns and other unique barriers they may face. The data from the count aims to help all levels of government look at better solutions to the problem. Darius Zargar, Global News. Yet another report. Thank you, Darius. By the way, this is the Bill Kelly Show, CFPL London and CHML Hamilton. Uh, and there's just another report and another study done about homelessness. And, and we hear these almost on a daily basis. Uh, which begs the question, what is government doing about it? And government has a role to play here. Make no mistake about it. And this is a crisis. This is not something, oh, that just happens in the big cities. It's happening everywhere. You've got people living in, in tent encampments still. And and a, it's it's a, a frustrating situation, I'm sure, for the people involved, uh, both those who are living there and, and, and the the community in, at large, I think. And uh, we have to have a discussion about that. Our next guest, I think, has got some very pointed uh, opinions on this that uh, should move that discussion along. Uh, he is Colin Best. Colin is the president of the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. He's a regional counsel for Ward 1 in Milton. Uh, Colin, it's great to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Uh, thank you, Bill. Uh, you very poignantly, I think, in the piece that uh, that was published uh, in the Toronto Star, talked about exactly what's going on here. Uh, and governments have a role here. And, and this is one of these, and I know people get tired, oh, there's another thing about downloading. Uh, but if the governments, especially the provincial governments, don't do their part and their responsible uh, actions here, this all falls on you and me as property tax owners, and, and that jack, jacks our taxes up. So whether you're homeless or not, I guess, Colin, one of the takeaways here is this impacts everybody, doesn't it? Oh, it, it does. And it's also very expensive. Our current model is not working and it's costing everybody, whether it be a property taxpayer, provincial or federal taxpayer money, because you've got increased, uh, you know, uh, social services costs, increased uh, policing costs. And a lot of these people are people who have never been homeless before. And one thing I found out in my own community where we're seeing more and more homeless people, a lot of them were, were 90 days ago, they were working, they had a house or apartment, and now they're out in the street. So we've got to start to finding ways. And uh, eight months ago, the big city mayors got together and asked both the federal and provincial governments, can we have an emergency meeting and sit down and start working things out? Because this, you know, from not only a human point of point of view of seeing the heartbreak, and I'm on a transitional housing board, and just to see the phone calls and the emails I'm getting, that you know we need to solve this and we need to get people up. It's not so much a handout; it's a hand up to get them back into their, into homes. Do they even understand it, though? I mean, is your role with AMO, and for those who may not know, of course, this is uh, the association is just all the elected officials from towns and cities right across the province of Ontario, uh, your members, and, and we meet. And, and when I was on council, I found it to be a very uh, insightful way to kind of get together and share stories about what's happening in Milton or as opposed to Hamilton to London to Ottawa, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the other side of that, of course, is is the governments, both federal and provincial, have to listen and have to understand the magnitude of the problem. Do you get the sense that they do? Uh, we're hoping to. We've just had uh, meetings with provincial and federal officials uh, through uh, the Federation of Municipalities, and we've asked them both uh, 
you know, very pointedly in their budgets and our, our submissions to them that we need to address this issue because uh, there are projects out there. I know the city of Kitchener and, and some uh, northern Ontario municipalities have found ways to do this. And actually, uh, the police have actually commented that it's actually reduced a lot of their costs because they're very concerned because they don't want to see people out in the street, especially when it's like minus 30 in northern Ontario. Well, and, and there's a provincial responsibility here, and I know this goes back, well, probably to the 1990s, uh, when both the federal and provincial governments essentially kind of backed away from their, their responsibility towards uh, housing and simply said, well, that's, that's a municipal issue. We're just going to kind of stand back and let them handle it. Uh, and I, I don't know of any municipality, Colin, certainly not Milton, certainly not Hamilton, certainly not Toronto or Ottawa that can do this on their own. This, this is a shared responsibility, or it should be anyway. Yeah, exactly. On that uh, point, uh, Bill, municipalities contribute almost uh, $3 billion a year in social uh, services and health costs that basically are provincial and federal responsibilities. And we're asking them that, you know, we understand you, you have some challenges too, but give us the tools to do the job. You know, what I've seen in, in the, not only my community, but other ones is either large communities or two small rural communities it is where people are shocked to see that, you know, their friends and neighbors are losing their homes and they're out in the street and they don't know what to do because they have no survival skills. Well, and it's, again, to go back to the idea of shared responsibility, I know that uh, uh, Hamilton City Council just passed their budget, and I think London did theirs a little while ago, and, and you start talking about the impact that, that that's going to have on, on ratepayers and on taxpayers, and and you well know this, but just to remind our listeners, though, Colin, uh, some of the programs that, that Milton taxpayers, Hamilton taxpayers, London taxpayers all do are, are mandated programs. In other words, the province says you must have this program, and, you and you're going to pay for it at your level. We're not going to pay for it. Uh, and, and this falls under this guise right now where, you know, when people start to complain, I think it went about 6.78% tax increase in Hamilton this year. And they say, well, we can't afford that. Uh, about 60% of that are mandated programs. And this is one of them. If the government, uh, the Ontario government especially, which, as you point out here, actually uh, is, is one of the worst offenders when it comes to the contributions towards housing. If they stepped up to a game, even to where the other provinces are right now, that uh, only would not get housing built and, and get people off the street and, and put a roof over their head. It would probably offer some relief for, for property taxpayers as well. Yeah, exactly. And also our healthcare system, because yeah. a lot of the people that are homeless, it's costing our healthcare, especially in terms of mental health and addictions. And we need to change that because it is costing us all. And a lot of these people are, you know, working uh, uh, people. They had a job, they had uh, uh, a home. Now they don't know how to get back. And the longer they're on the street, the worse it gets for them. So we need to turn this around because, you know, it's been a long winter. Let's let's talk about the the partnership that that exists now and the way it's going because I know that uh, that you and your association uh, and a number of mayors, uh, former Mayor John Tory in Toronto, was very vocal about this. Other mayors have have tried to make the point to the provincial government, and they keep saying, uh, "Well, you know what? It's the past governments. It's all their fault." Uh, well, and they've got a point because this yeah. is not a new problem. But past governments, both conservative, NDP, and liberal. All three of them have have shunned their responsibility or not made the you know the commitment that they had to make to do something like this, but I guess the message that uh, that your association is giving right now is that you're, that may be right, Mr. Premier, but you're in government right now and it's your responsibility to fix it. You know, stop apportioning blame. Where are we going to do going forward? And and that has to be the focus of the discussion, I would think. 
Yeah, exactly. Is basically what we're saying is where do we go from here? And this is also we're calling on the federal government because they have a lot of responsibilities as well in this area. And a lot of it, you know, is cooperation. I think the city of Kitchener did a great program taking vacant buildings and taking people that were in tent encampments and putting them in buildings. So they actually had an address so they could contact people. They had washrooms. They had people, what we call wraparound services in terms of social and mental health and areas where they could find it. Because unfortunately for a lot of people, it's just you're trying to find them because even my own community i've had bank managers calling me so uh is there anything we can do because we have people sleeping in our atm machine area and it's shocking for people to see that you know there's someone laying on the floor there where they try to uh, uh, go to the bank machine yeah and it's happening those stories are happening just about everywhere and uh, you're right i mean when we look at what's going on now uh, this, uh, to be a glasses half full kind of guy, is is an opportunity for us. I mean, you know, we're coming out of COVID. Uh, we've had a number of different topics on the program over the last little while. I know you guys have talked about it in Milton, too, uh, about, you know, the, the changing workplace. And a lot of people are working remotely and, and going to stay that way. So there's going to be some available office space, some of it government buildings, in fact. Uh, where's the discussion about, well, look, instead of that stuff sitting empty, maybe we can transition uh, people, put a roof over there, and as you say, give them an address. I mean, they can't even apply for any number of government assistance unless they can say, well, here's where you can find me. And it, it can't be, yeah, the ATM at the uh, the Bank of Montreal on King Street. That's that's not good enough. Uh, you know, there's there's got to be some stability, but there's got to be a commitment from governments uh, to try to, as you say, not to give them a hand out, but a hand up. Yeah, exactly. And that's one thing that we've mentioned to both federal and provincial governments, that we worked together during COVID. You know, we had we had basically you know, pivot and, you know, come up with, with programs that we didn't exist, you know, over the last three years. We can do the same for homelessness because it's a shared uh, issue and it's a shared challenge that we can, you know, overcome together. But we need to get to, together on this. And that's where we're looking forward to the budgets next week and saying, OK, yes, we are going to take a chance on this. We are going to work together we're going to reach out because municipality has been asking for this for over a year now so where are we on this i mean as we say then you know the budget at the end of the month and and you're hoping there's going to be some good news in that uh but but is there a plan is there a strategy i mean you know we used it as a comparator uh, I mean, even in the United States, and, and, you know, we can talk about the battle of the United States and, and you know, the Trump administration and, and previous administrations, but there are some things that they just left as untouchable. And one of them was, was well, of course, first of all, was transportation, but the other was housing. I mean, they understand the, the necessity for this uh, for just about every community, and they seem to have had a longstanding uh, tripartite relationship here between the federal, the state, and the municipal governments. Uh, I don't know why we can't mirror that. Yeah, well, that's one of the things we're looking at. That's what I've asked the Minister of Housing to you look at provincial properties. You know, you're asking municipalities to come up with a billion dollars a year for, uh, you know, development charge uh, funding. You know, look at your own properties, see what we can do there and work together because they're already on existing services. They can be hooked up now. There's probably a lot of vacant uh, properties, that uh, buildings that could be used right now and in the future planned together because municipalities are now been do downloaded new official plans. Most them that were didn't ask for and we have to we'll work together and let's find the challenge of people of all income levels because that is what we're finding for not only young people but for uh, semi-retired people that that uh, they're being uh, moved out due to high rents and this, i've heard the sad stories and i know i know you just referenced it a few minutes ago uh, colin that 
if, if you go down and talk to some of these people uh, and, and listen to their stories, like I say, a year ago, six months ago, they were probably working. They had a job. I mean, and I, I know it's a cliche to say there, but for the grace of God, go I. But I mean, these were people that never expected or ever thought that they were going to be homeless. Uh, but, you know, let, we've heard the, the tragic stories that have gone on now. Uh, inflation has hit. Interest rates have hit. There have been the layoffs in many factors in many sectors these days. Uh, and all of a sudden, you've got people turning to food banks and, and because they can't pay the rent, can't buy groceries. And the next step is they lose their house, their rental place, whatever the case might be. There's There's got to be a sense of urgency here. I guess that's what we're looking for from the feds in the province, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. And that's one thing that uh, as municipalities we want to do because we're seeing right uh, on our front doorstep, we actually had a person that was living in their car in a municipal parking lot for three months and we tried everything possible. And eventually we found a way to, to move them to appropriate uh, uh, location, but they're in the same boat. You know, they lost their job, they lost their apartment and they're out on the street. What do they do from now? And unfortunately, that affects people mentally. And that's one thing we need to change, you know, in having these programs ahead of time so people can prevent this because it just costs everybody more when people are homeless. Well, and the, cons- the, the concern and message here has to be, uh, you know, this is, as you mentioned, it's not a handout. It's it's an investment, really. Uh, you know, to get these people, uh, you know, under a roof, uh, to get them healthy again and, and to give them some assistance and some support so they can kind of get their lives back together again. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that's someone else, that, one less person that we have to worry about. If we can do that en masse, uh, then we can alleviate this. And, and like I say, if, if you don't want to do it for humanitarian reasons, do it for financial reasons, because this is costing us money that we don't need to be spending on here, but we're doing it because governments are not making the financial commitment that they need to to get this problem solved. Yeah, and that's one thing we found in Northern Ontario where the problem is three times that, where they did uh, institute a program to reduce homelessness. Uh, the other uh, areas, like such as policing, uh, healthcare, found that they saved 80% of their funding because they're out there doing calls. And in Northern Ontario, it's even worse than what we have here because it's a three-hour drive just to get someone to a hospital. Exactly. I, I wish you luck with this. I know, I, I, just, I, was, I was reading your op-ed piece yesterday in the stars, hearkening back, and I think it was 1998 or something. I was just recently on Hamilton City Council, and we went to, actually, it was the Federation of Municipalities, a federal level of, of, uh, of the convention, and uh, that was the, the hue and cry. Where's the money? Where's the money for housing? Uh, because governments had basically relinquished their responsibility. Uh, they're coming back, and we see and, and I know as an elected official, you see this a lot. Uh, you'll see the prime minister or the premier or somebody come up and they'll make some announcement and there's a, a check handed out and this is wonderful. But those are one-offs. What I think you're looking for here is sustainable funding over the long term, isn't it? Yeah, yes, we are. And are working together and basically all players, like we, as you mentioned about Tripartia, you know, we have properties available that we've got concept plans. We just need the province and the federal government to both come up together and make those investments because it's nice to make the announcement. It, we're still waiting for months you know, from the province on, okay, what's the details? Where's the money? Because uh, you know, we just had one from the federal government that, oh, we're going to you know, do this uh, funding for you. Six months later, we're still waiting for it. Exactly. Get the money out the door as quickly as possible. Uh, Colin, again, thank you for writing the piece, and uh, thanks for spending some time with us this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Have a great day.
You too. Colin Best, who is the president of the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. And, of course, he's our regional council for Ward 1 in uh, the town of Milton and Halton region. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Justice Department has launched an investigation into the sudden failure of Silicon Valley Bank, according to two people familiar with the matter. It's unclear for now what federal prosecutors are focused on and whether there has been any wrongdoing. But experts say it's not uncommon for the Justice Department to decide to look under the hood in these situations. The Securities and Exchange Commission has also opened an investigation into Silicon Valley Bank. Neither the DOJ nor SEC has commented. M. Wynn, ABC News, Washington. Uh, that's the situation in the States, of course. I think a lot of people were shocked when they heard the news over the weekend. Actually, there was another bank, uh, I think in the, uh, the Southeast that, uh, that also went under. Uh, it's a troubling situation in the financial world, which is uh, having its own challenges these days anyway. So what's going to happen? Not so much with this, but what is the impact going to be on this side of the border? I think we've always kind of taken pride in the fact that oh, our Canadian banking system is much better than that. All the checks and balances are in place. Uh, but I, I, I get the feeling there's at least some ripple effects that are going to be felt here. To talk about that, please to welcome back to the program Marvin Ryder, a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, thanks for jumping on today. Really appreciate the time. Glad to be with you, Bill. What is going to happen to the Canadian banking system? They have responded to, to what happened down there, haven't they? Yeah. So if you, if you don't mind, just a little primer on banking before I answer your question directly. Sure. Uh, I go into a bank today and I deposit my paycheck. And then what the bank does is they take those deposits and they turn around and loan them out. Sometimes they loan them for 30 days in the case of a credit card. They might loan them for three to five years in the case of a, bank, a car loan. And they might loan them for 25 or 30 years in the case of a mortgage. Um, and what they do is they try to then uh, balance their liquidity needs, meaning how much cash do I need to have on a day-to-day basis versus my longer-term loans. And banks know this fairly precisely. They know, for instance, before Christmas, there's going to be a little more cash demanded by people. Other times of the year, a little less cash. And they know this pretty precisely. Now, what we had happen on Friday was when people began to hear bad things about Silicon Valley Bank, depositors showed up and said, I want my money back. And they just don't have all of that money sitting around in cash And of course, that caused more fears, and that's why the government had to step in and remind depositors that all their deposits were secure. Now, what we're concerned about north of the border is uh, whether that contagion, that sudden desire for all the depositors to withdraw their money would come north of the border. We call that a run on the bank. And so what the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions has done is he said, I'm going to check in with all of you major Canadian banks on a daily basis. Normally, he checks on their liquidity status monthly and gets a nice report quarterly. But he says, I'm going to call you every day. I don't know what time, but let's say around 11 o'clock. How's everything? Is everything good? Because this could be an unusual time. In other words, people might suddenly demand more cash than the bank had planned to have. We don't want to see a run on the bank. The government would rather be proactive rather than reactive. And so I I don't think we're going to have any problems, but they're just a little more closely monitoring during this difficult time. 
Kind of reminds me of the old days when I was in high school and the teacher says, I'm going to check your homework every day now, Bill. Uh, you, you just better, if you have it ready. But I, I, And if they follow the systems, and you and I have had this discussion in the past, Marvin, uh, you know, if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and, you know, dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's, the, the Canadian banks would probably pass these things with flying colors. I don't think they're going to find too many, if any, red flags, are they? That's right. You know, uh, we don't have the problem. Now, let me, again, contrast the Canadian system to the American system. We have a very small number of very large banks. The bank that went under, Silicon Valley Bank, was the 16th, 16th largest bank in the United States. Uh, and basically what the United States has gone to is a regional model. So if you have problems in a regional economy, it could be showing up in a bank because they can't diversify across the whole country. For instance, if I'm a bank and I'm based in Texas, you know that a lot of my business is going to be tied to the oil industry. Well, Silicon Valley Bank was tied to the economy of Northern California. And generally speaking, the tech sector had been doing very well. But we've seen at the end of 2022 and early 23 that there are cracks, that uh, companies in the tech sector thought that our shift in behavior during COVID would be permanent. And so they had scaled their businesses to match. And then it turned out that as COVID started to disappear, we went back to our old habits and that has caused problems. Meta, a company that you might know, uh, that's the parent company of Facebook and Instagram. I think mm -hmm. they've laid off 10,000 workers. Well, if, if I'm highly tied to the tech sector and the tech sector is having some problems, it could expose my bank. And that's really what happened here. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank uh, invested for the longer term, many of their dollars in the bonds held by tech companies, the returns on those bonds are relatively low compared to, for instance, where interest rates are today. And they just didn't have that ability to diversify across a larger portfolio. I, I have always wondered why it is that America seems to prefer a chain of regional banks to these larger central banks. Canada's banks are so diversified, we just don't notice a problem if Alberta gets into trouble or Quebec gets into trouble or Ontario gets into trouble the, because of this diversity, it just doesn't have the same problem here. Uh, and uh, by the way, just uh, a point of distinction, because I got some notes about this one uh, on Monday when this news uh, was starting to get digested, I guess, uh, because there was some concern that uh, that people were going to be left stranded here. Uh, if And it, they have the same sorts of laws. If you're a depositor, if you have an account there, uh, your money is insured by the by the federal government, the federal deposit insurance. Center. So they'll get the but the investors in that bank, uh, they're out in the cold here, aren't they? That's correct. So, uh, but let's go with the first part. They, they have the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. We have the Canadian Deposit Insurance Corporation. It doesn't give you an unlimited guarantee. It says no. that we'll guarantee the first, I believe it's 100000 And if I'm wrong, it's 200000 that you have invested. Now, for most of us, having $200,000 in our bank account would be a rare occasion. But suppose you just won the lottery or you just won a major golf tournament and you deposited your check. Only the first 200000 is guaranteed. Well, what the federal government and the states did was say, we are going to extend extend that guarantee to whatever money you had deposited. And they're going to keep the, the um, you know, uh, account holders, the account holders, they're going to keep them whole. What they're not doing is a bailout. So they're saying, if you owned stock in this bank, if you're uh, a shareholder in this bank, we're not going to make you whole. You're going to have to take your lumps along with the rest. But we don't want the people who had accounts there suffering. And this becomes important not for individuals, but for businesses. Uh, as I said, 
Northern California is a tech hub. There's lots of startup companies whose payrolls might be measured in millions of dollars. They would have larger accounts set up in that bank. They're not going to have any problem meeting their payrolls because the federal government is supporting them. Now, I, I got about a minute or so left, but I want to ask you if history can repeat itself here. Back in uh, 2009, 2010, during that recession, and, and U.S. banks were, well, crippled in many, many ways. Uh, Canadian banks benefited from that. Uh, you know, both, uh, well, TD, BMO, just about all the Canadian banks uh, bought out some of those American banks and, and you know, have extended their, their reach into there. And TD and, and, and BMO, I guess, are still doing that, looking for things like this. Uh, I know that, uh, for instance, TD was, gonna, uh, was supposed to be buying uh, First Horizon Bank, uh, but the, if the confidence in the banks goes down, so does their stock price. Is that going to impact some of these pr proposed expansion plans by Canadian banks? Uh, yes, uh, although I'm not sure it'll be a negative. In other words, uh, we know, for instance, right now with uh, Silicon Valley Bank that its assets are up for sale. The government says we would like someone to step in and, and take hold. Whether that'll be a Canadian bank, I don't know. But what the Canadian banks have realized, because they are so dominant in the Canadian economy, they've kind of saturated the market. If they want to get growth, they've got to look outside the country. So obviously, the United States market 10 times the size of Canada is a logical place for them to go. Most of the banks have got very healthy balance sheets, meaning they have the ability to take on an acquisition or two. So, you know, if there are a couple of banks that are a little wobbly in the U.S., I won't be shocked to see Canadian banks snap them up. If not in 2023, maybe more of 2024, But because uh, you don't want to buy something that's on the edge of failure. But I, I think you will see the Canadian banks continue to expand in the U.S., Interesting story and lots more to come on this. Marvin, always great to get your perspective. Thanks so much for this. Glad to be with you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.